Good morning. My name is Spencer. Again, I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series called The Five Solas. Uh, these are the five dividing lines of theology that ended up forcing the Protestants out of the Catholic Church and started the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we are in the fourth sola today, which is Solus Christus, which is Christ alone, the very thing we just sang about. Uh, so we'll be looking at that. About a month ago, I went to Houston, uh, Texas. I took Ben Johnson, who's one of our members. He's the director of a missions organization called 1040 Hope. And they plant churches across the Middle East and North Africa. He's actually currently over in North Africa right now. And, uh, and I took him there because I said, Ben, part of what he does here is he raises money for church plants and mission projects over there. I just said, Ben, uh, if you want to raise money, I want to introduce you uh, to something called Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas, uh, including the pockets of people who can give to plant churches. Let me take you there and introduce you to some people. So we went. We had a good weekend. I got to preach at uh, my, my longtime friend and mentor's uh, church, a Methodist church. Uh, in Houston, and I, uh, at that church, I sat in the front, right by the choir loft, which kind of felt nice to be a part of the choir, because I'm never going to be allowed to do that up here, but uh, I got to sit up there, because, up in, you know, in that tradition and other traditions, you have the pastor that sits up front the whole time. We don't do that here, because not every face that stands up here is ready for prime time. You can guess who that might be, but we, I got to stand up there, and because of that, Ben saw my face as we went through some of the liturgy that the Methodist Church does, I came to faith in the Methodist Church. I love the Methodist Church. Uh, I'm obviously no longer Methodist, but I appreciate so many of the things that they do. And as we went through the liturgy, as we sang things like the, the Gloria Patri and things that we don't do here, I was very excited. Ben said, your face was beaming, like you were glowing. And then we got to uh, the Apostles' Creed which is something that I grew up uh, Presbyterian and then I came to faith in the Methodist Church. Both traditions say the Apostle Creed every single Sunday. And I, I, we, as we said it, I just was so, I was like, man, this is so good. Because it's a truth, it's a creed that goes back to the 4th, 5th century that binds us all in Christian faith. Whether you're Catholic or Protestant or whatever, like this binds us together. It, it starts with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, uh, maker of heaven and earth. That is uh, the Father, right? That's who we believe in. Then it gets to Jesus and says, I, and, and Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who shall come to, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. All of those statements are about Christ. And we, yes, and amen, all of them. Like, we believe that, yes, he came, was born of the Virgin Mary. That, yes, he did uh, die a death on the cross for us that we deserve. That he rose to new life in Christ at the resurrection. That he will come back as judge one day, but currently sits at the right hand of God the Father. We believe in all of that. And Catholics and Protestants would both say that our faith is in Christ alone. We both would say that. We both are bound together that Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. We don't believe in any other God. We believe in Christ. So if that is true, why is it that this is one of the five solas? Why is this one of the dividing lines for us? It has to do with how we define alone. As Protestants, 
We put a period there and say, amen. In Catholicism, there's a bit of an asterisk in how you define that. And as we're going to see today, part of that is bound up in how we have access to Christ. That is going to be the difference. So I want to quickly go through the history of Solus Christus, of Christ alone. I want to look at uh, the power of it, why we believe it's good and how powerful that is for us. And I just want to leave us with some encouragements of what that means for us as Christians. So let me pray for us and then we will dive in. God, I pray that you'd help us be present this morning. You would speak to us. You'd open our hearts to receive your word. And that you would help us see how good it is that Christ alone is whom we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first I want to look at the history of Christ alone. So as we've said in this series, that there are, uh, that the, the spark that lit uh, the powder keg of the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther. Uh, there were things that happened before him and after him, figures before and after that, that helped this come to being. But he was really the spark that lit it. And the event that lit it, as we've talked about in the last few weeks, was when he posted the 95 theses, 95 objections, really, to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, he had written some stuff before then. Check covered that last week. He'd written some 97 theses before covering this. But the 95 that he wrote, well, this really lit uh, the Protestant Reformation. And there's a lot in there that deals with some of the things we talked about, faith alone and grace alone. There's a little bit of what we see, the beginnings of this in Christ alone that later gets developed by the Protestants. In Thesis number six, it says, The Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring and showing that it has been remitted by God. And what he's getting at there is that only God forgives sins. The only power that the Pope, the only power that a priest has is to acknowledge the work that Christ has already done. There is no one that stands in the middle here. And Luther and the Reformers began to develop this further in their theology as time progressed. Chet last week talked about sola fide, which is faith alone. He talked about uh, the cell of indulgences. The sale of indulgences were, were things, were, uh, were sold, indulgences were sold so that they could, uh, they could uh, lessen their time in purgatory or get family or friends out of purgatory. So they bought these indulgences to do that. And Chet walked us through last week uh, how problematic that is. That you could actually buy and purchase salvation. That as that, uh, that traveling preacher Tetzel said, he said, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. He walked through how that, that doesn't line up with the gospel of faith alone, but also it's not just a problem that you could teach that someone could purchase uh, salvation. That's not the only problem. What makes that doubly terrible is the idea that anyone could stand in the middle between us and God. That there was any mediator, someone who stands in the middle between us and the Lord. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God... And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. That's what the reformers continue to come back to. There's only one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about this a little bit uh, in the past few weeks. I just want to make this more clear now. Many of the things that the Catholic Church was doing at the time, they are no longer doing. Right? So what happened after the Protestants 
protested and had their objections and were forced out, the Catholic Church thankfully did look in the mirror at some of their practices. They had something called the Council of Trent that lasted for a couple of decades where they looked at the sale of indulgences. They looked at some of the inquisitions, some of the horrible things that they had done, and they said, we can no longer do this. And thank you, Jesus, that they did. They reformed a lot of their own ways. It's the reason why the Catholic Church is the way it is today and not how it was 500 years ago. We're thankful because there's lots of brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church. Absolutely, yes and amen. However, on some of these dividing lines of theology, and specifically this one as well, they said no. And that's why the Protestants left and did not come back. On this issue of Christ alone, we have a different understanding of how we have access to God. We walk through faith alone and grace alone. Now the Catholic Church, even the Council of Trent, very aggressively said no to that. They believe you're saved by, uh, by faith and works. Well, how they define works is bound up in the means of grace. That's the language that they use. The means of grace that the priesthood administers. The Pope Bishops, cardinals, priests, that the grace is something that they control and administer. And we find that incredibly problematic as Protestants. I read one uh, Protestant scholar. This is pretty thick, but I'll walk through it. He, I think he absolutely nailed this. He said, outside the Roman church, there is no salvation. Which, that, that, is, that, is, a, that is standard Catholic doctrine. That we, because we are not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, at a minimum in their eyes are going to purgatory. We as Protestants say purgatory isn't biblical. We don't agree with that, no. But that is Catholic doctrine. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Outside her walls, no infused grace can be found. As much as Christ is man's exclusive Savior. Which we look at that and say, yes. Jesus is our only hope. He is our only Savior. Yes and Amen. He says, the church is needed as mediator of the grace that Christ gives. And we say, no, no, there is no mediator between us and Christ. No. He goes on to say, salvation cannot be based upon the work of Christ alone, solus Christus. Rather, Christ is in the church, Christus in ecclesia, which is just Latin for Christ in the church. And the church is in Christ, ecclesia in Christo. Simple trust in Christ is not alone. I think he accurately describes it there. But I read that and I was like, but you are a Protestant. I say, I think it's fair. We spent a lot of time looking at different Catholic doctrine over the last few weeks. I was like, let me hear actually their arguments to see how they teach this. So I, did a lot of, I, did, I had some fun this week and I went through the Catholic Catechism, which is very long and uh, was not as fun as I just described it. But I went through the Catholic Catechism, and I'll just show you a few places where they flesh this idea out. In one section of the Catechism, the Catechism is, is the teaching uh, that they give to the people. It is, is, so the, the Catholic ch uh, uh, Church members have the Catechism that guides them in faith and practice. In the Catholic Catechism, in one section, it says, The Council teaches that the Church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed at the same time, hear this, the necessity of the church which men enter through baptism as through a door. And what they just said there was, is that the church is necessary for salvation because they are the ones 
and more accurately the, accurately, the priesthood is the ones who administer baptism. And for Catholic faith, to enter into faith, you have to be baptized. That is initiation into faith. You're saved through the first work, which is baptism. So they're the ones that control that, the priesthood. Then it goes on to say in a different part of the catechism, through the ordained ministry, especially that of the bishops and priests, the presence of Christ as head of the church is made visible in the midst of the community of believers. Now that last part is beautiful. When it says, the presence of Christ as the head of the church is made visible in the midst of the community of believers. We say, absolutely, yes and amen. We, we absolutely believe that wholeheartedly. That we are, in, yes, that Christ is beautifully made visible in, the, in this church body right now. Yes and amen. But that's not what they said alone. The qualifier on that is especially that of the bishops and the priests. That there is something special about the priesthood as a part of the church. So, how specifically is the church necessary for salvation? How specifically... Are the bishops and the priests the most a very necessary, especially necessary part of it? Because they are the ones that deliver the means of grace. And specifically, when they talk about means of grace, they mean the sacraments. The sacraments. The language they use for sacraments are channels of grace. All right? We as Protestants look at that. Sacraments are practices that Jesus ordained that are holy. We as Protestants said, we think there's two of them in the scriptures. Baptism that we practiced last week is a picture of faith in Christ. And the Lord's Supper, which we'll practice this week, which is a reminder of what Jesus did for us. We look at that and we say, that's what these holy practices are. The reminders of the goodness of the gospel. But for the, but, but for the Catholic Church, they're more than that. They are channels of grace that initiate and sustain faith. There's baptism, there's uh, confirmation, the Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper. There's penance, there's anointing the sick, there's matrimony, which is marriage, and there's the holy orders, which is ordination. But a few of those are especially really important, right? Because if you want to be saved, you have to be baptized, and you need a priest to do that. If you want to uh, take part of the Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper, they believe in something called transubstantiation, which is just a big word of saying they believe that literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. And that gives you spiritual power as you partake of the literal sacrifice of Christ every week. If you want to sustain your faith, you have to take part in this. But the priesthood is the only one that can administer this. If you want to repent of your sins, you must take part in penance, which is going to confession, which is having the priest tell you, you should say seven Hail Marys, go help a widow. And make good on your penance. You need the priesthood for all of that. Do you understand how that is a problem? To have access to God, you would need someone in the middle to deliver these means of grace. As Protestants, we looked at that and we said, no. Like when they started to, I mean, Luther very early on wasn't objecting to this. But as they continue to search the scriptures, the reformers looked at the Bible and they looked at the practice of the priesthood being necessary for faith and for sustaining your faith. And they just said, no. Like they were zero days old when they realized this isn't true. Which is one of those memes, the, the zero days old memes. Like if you're zero days old when you figured out a thing, 
Like I looked at this week, it was, it was, there was one meme. A meme is a picture, y'all, that has words on it. Uh, there was a picture that had words on it, and the picture was a picture of IHOP. All right? and, and the words said, I was today years old when I realized there's a smiley face in the logo of IHOP. I was like, oh, that's cool. And then I looked at another one, and it said, I was zero days old when I realized that flames don't have a shadow. And I went, wait, what? And it had a picture of a match, and behind the match there was no shadow of the flame. I was, my mind was blown. Like I, it was, I was in the office, and I ran down. I, was like, I grabbed Chet and Isaac. And I said, Chet, Isaac, look at this. I had a lighter, and I had my flashlight. We went to a dark room, probably a little, uh, that, that, that. lit it, no, flame, no, no shadow behind the flame. And I was like, there's no shadow behind the flame. And they were like, yeah, of course there isn't. It's a light source. Why would you believe that? And I was like, don't act like you're not impressed. That is amazing, y'all. You're welcome. That, it blew my mind. They, they looked at this, the scriptures, and said no. And it blew their minds. They said, no, we don't need a priesthood to have access to God. They ultimately said, we are the priesthood. That's why we believe we're the priesthood of all believers. That's the Protestant teaching. That we believe we all equally have access to God. That is what we believe. That is what we maintain. That we have this access to Christ. That's the history of it. Now, I want to look at the power of this. Because I want us to see how this is unbelievably good news by looking at the power of Christ alone. In 1 Timothy 2.5, again, it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. You could read that on a Facebook post. You could see that on a billboard. All right? You could open a Bible and read that. And if you are not a believer, you could look at that and say, I need a mediator. I need somebody to cover my sin. I need the gospel, I need Christ. You could place faith in Jesus and get in your car to go tell your family or friends that you place faith in Jesus, and then a semi takes you out and you are dead. And in that very next moment, you are standing in the presence of God for eternity. You did not need a mediator for that. You did not need a priest to come and give you this. You read the word of God, God saves you, redeems you. Christ is our mediator. You don't need a priest to be baptized into faith. You don't need to take part of the Eucharist and thinking that the literal body and blood of Christ is what's going to sustain your faith. You don't need a, a, a priest for penance. You have direct access to the great high priest in Christ. Look, look at the book of Hebrews that talks about this, this great high priest. I just want to show you two places. In chapter 4, it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That we have a great high priest that went, Christian, when you pray. Offering prayers to the Father, Jesus stands at the right hand of God. And he is our great high priest who is taking our prayers and our worship. It says, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's not just that we have a great high priest, which we do. We have a great high priest who understands what it's like to be human, who understands what it's like to be weak, who understands what it's like to be tempted, 
He was tempted and tried by Satan himself in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights after, after fasting. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to lose. He knows what it's like to experience the sting of death. He understands all of it. And he stands in the heavens right now and is able to sympathize with us as we pray to him. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What that means is, is that you can approach our great high priest with confidence. Like we don't have to because we... Some of us look at our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion, and we just, you might think, oh, I just, I can't, I can't approach God. I gotta, I gotta figure this out. I gotta clean up my life. I can't look at Him. I can't, I just feel so dirty. I feel so ashamed. And the goodness of the gospel is, is that you get to, in your sin, approach Christ with confidence. Because the confidence isn't from our own. It's from what he gives to us that we can boldly enter the throne room of prayer and and offer up praises and prayer to Christ because of what he has done and not what we have done. Like there's this whole Old Testament tradition that leads up to this. It's so beautiful as it develops that uh, in the the book of Exodus, which we're actually going to study later this year, that Moses served as a mediator between the people and God. He was the middleman. And when Moses, as the middleman, went up to Mount Hor, Mount Sinai, when he goes up there and he gets the law, he gets the, the Ten Commandments, it changes him because he experiences the glory of God. It actually changes his complexion. His face is beaming with the glory of God. When he comes down, the people can't handle it. It, it, like, because sinners can't be in the presence of the glory of God. His glory is too powerful. He has to put a veil over his face because it's too glorious. And then as they later on build the temple where the presence of God will rule and reign from, in the innermost part of the temple was called the Holy of Holies. That is where God resigned. That's where, that's where he ruled and reigned from. And there's a great curtain a great veil that separated God from the people and as Moses points forward to the mediator that is Christ later on when Jesus breathes his last breath that veil and the temple is completely torn in two the curtain is torn in two and what that signifies is that we now have direct access to God We can boldly and confidently, because of the good news of the gospel, we can come to our God. This is what Chet was covering last week in Sola Fide. He was talking about Jesus and his righteousness being applied to us and him taking our sin. That's what Luther called the great exchange. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The picture there is that when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, our sins are nailed to the cross. Through faith in him, he takes our sin. And what Jesus does is he puts on us, or as theologians will say, imputes on us, 
He gives us the righteousness of Christ, the perfect record that he earned. We get that. So when we come to God, God doesn't see our sin as believers. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ, and our sin was paid for. So we have direct access to God because of what God has done for us. That is powerful good news that we have faith in Christ alone and we have direct access to this God. That is the good news of the gospel. Now, I want to leave us with a few further encouragements of Christ alone. A few more encouragements that help us see this really is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. First encouragement. Christ alone means the whole Bible points to him. The whole Bible is about Christ from start to finish. You can open up the word to the book of Genesis. You get to Genesis 1.26. God is creating the world, and when he gets to man, he says, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. The plural use of us and our is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in the Trinity in conversation with himself saying we're going to make man in our own image. You see Jesus there. You see it in Genesis 3 when sin comes into the world and God is handing down the curse. He's also hands down the first proclamation of the gospel. Theologians, I don't know if you noticed in this series, there's a lot of theology in this series and they're really up in the clouds, and they use a lot of big words. They call that the proto-evangelion. You just could have said, hey, the first declaration of the good news. The first time we heard the good news of the gospel, right there. But in Genesis 3.15, is the declaration that one day the seed of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that is the first declaration that Jesus will come. He will come in the line of Eve, and he will destroy the power of Satan. You watch as the Old Testament continues to play out. You watch as we just talked about Moses is the mediator. But he's not the ultimate mediator. He's not the ultimate man in the middle. That In Deuteronomy 18, 18, the law that Moses wrote, it says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. There is a prophet that is coming. There is a mediator that is coming. He's coming in the line of the people. Then Moses hands down the Old Testament law. The law that was meant to keep them in fellowship with God, but the people of God could not follow it. They rejected God. They did not want any part of him. So God sends prophets throughout the rest of the Old Testament, each of them calling the people of God back to worship with him, telling them don't chase after idols, don't go after sin. But they're also saying there is a prophet that is coming. There is a Messiah who will come, and he will fix all of this. Then finally... In Bethlehem, he comes. You get to the New Testament, and we see that Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament law, that he is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate Messiah, who fulfills the law. He goes to the cross. He fulfills the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He becomes our final sacrifice, our final sacrifice for sin. And then he resurrects and gives us a new life in Christ. And then he, before he ascends into heaven, he says, go, make disciples of all nations. He sends out the church. The book of Acts happened where they, they declare the goodness and the gospel of Christ. And it flips Europe and North Africa upside down. 
Then you read the rest of the New Testament letters. They're pointing back to what Christ has done. They're pointing to how good Christ is. They're pointing to how we should follow him as the new covenant people of God. You get to the end of the book, the final book, the book of Revelation, which points forward to the day when Jesus comes back and he will make all things new. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible is about Christ. Christ alone, which means the encouragement read it. Soak in the Word of God. See Christ in His Word. Explore it. Live your life in it. Abide in Him through the Word of God. Second encouragement. Christ alone is our only hope. Christ alone is our only hope. John 14, 6. If you've been in church long enough, this is a verse you might be familiar with. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is uh, called the exclusivity of Christ. It just means that Christ is our only exclusive hope. That he is our only Savior. There's There's no one else that's coming to save you. There's no one else that's coming to offer redemption. there's no other faith outside of Christ. There's not faith in Allah. There's not faith in the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. There isn't anything else that's going to redeem you. It's only in Christ. That also means for us, and all the things we consume on a regular basis, the stuff you consume online, on Instagram, there's no other way to live your life outside of the goodness of Christ. No other lifestyle, there's no other method of clean living, there's no other new age philosophy, there's no new ideas, there's no follower, no no new leader out there that's speaking of a new path, a new way. There is nothing that will give us hope outside of Christ. None of those things will rescue you. None of them will stand for you in judgment. We only have the hope of Christ alone. A while back I was watching this Netflix documentary called Wild Wild Country. It's about this, uh, this, this cult that took over a town in like Oregon. Like they completely took it over and renamed it Rajneesh Puram, which is Rajneesh was the, the Indian guru, uh, cult leader. And I watched this because they got me on the first episode. And I was like, oh, God, I want to know more about this. And I kept going. And you get to the end of it and they're interviewing these people the whole time about all the things, the crazy things that happened this this cult, the wild things. That's why it's called Wild Wild Country. And they start talking about all the like the hope they had in it, and they look so devastated. Like they they left their families and they cut off friends and they 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 sold the, everything. They moved out to the. I mean, they 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 gave up everything for this, and it was a lie. And the look of devastation and hopelessness on their faces, I think is such a picture of what we do when we put our hope in anything outside of Christ. The the things that we put our hope in, whether it's a career, whether it's a, you know, whether it's money and success, whether it's a marriage, children, fill in the blank. The things that we put our hope in outside of Christ, they never satisfy There are going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day that look just like those people did in that documentary, completely devastated, because they put their hope in something else other than Christ. 
Don't settle for a lesser hope. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. It is in Christ alone. And the hope that he offers is such good news. The fact that we have atonement, we have someone that covers our sins, is just the start of it. There's joy. There's peace. There's gladness. There's an unbelievable stability that's found in Christ. There's so many things that he offers us. The riches, the immeasurable riches of Christ that he offers us. And right now is just a foretaste of what we have in eternity. Like it's just, it's so, it's good, but it's so small in comparison to what we have that's offered for us in Christ forever. That's the hope of Christ alone. Don't settle for a lesser hope. Don't do it. What Jesus offers truly is better. Third, Christ alone means life-giving repentance, not fearful penance. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic Church's take on this. It's this idea of I've got to do this. I've got to do something to make this right myself. One of the most powerful parables in Jesus' teachings is the parable of the prodigal son and the self-righteous brother. Right? Like that is one of the most popular ones for a reason because it's so good. It's such a picture of a faith and repentance and the joy that is bound up in that. The fact that a, that a a child looks at his, son, his father in that day and says, I don't want you. I want my inheritance. Like that was a complete, that was unheard of in Jewish culture. I don't, I don't want you. I want what's coming to me. I want my money. I don't want fellowship with you. I don't want to be on the same land with you. I want to go and experience the world. And he goes and he takes his money and he goes and spends it on wild and reckless living. And then a famine comes and sweeps through the land and he's penniless and he's friendless. And the only job he has is feeding pigs. And he looks at the food of the pigs and he longs to eat of the food. And then he finally says he came to himself. But he says, I will arise and go to my father, verse 18. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Like He, he almost, he still doesn't get it. He realizes that the, the, the picture there is he realizes that sin doesn't satisfy. That's the ultimate pic, the picture there. That sin doesn't satisfy. And when he gets to the end of it, by God's grace, he comes to himself and he goes back home. But he thinks, i got to have some type of speech ready. I, gotta, I won't be allowed to be a son. I gave that up when I rejected him. But at least I can be a hired hand. At least I can do a thing to be, I'll just be on the land. I'll be fine. And by the time that he gets to the property and he's getting ready to rehearse this, he's getting ready to say this speech that he has rehearsed. What does it say? The father sees him from a great distance, and he runs to him. And guys, you got to gear up his like his his clothing and run like like humiliate. He runs in joy, and he embraces his son, and he says, "My son is home. Grab the family ring, put it back on his finger." He kisses him before he can even say anything. He says, "You're home." You are, we're going to celebrate, slaughter the fattened calf. My boy is home. The self-righteous brother who's been there the whole time is like, no, that's not fair. I've been doing the good work. I've been here the whole time. Why haven't I gotten this? And he's like, you don't get it. There's so much joy found in my son coming home. That's why in the, in the parable that precedes it, it says in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repentance is a joyous thing. 
We don't fearfully have to come to God. He is waiting for us. He is excited. He wants to celebrate our, our belief and our faith and our repentance. Romans 2 teaches this, that his kindness leads us to repentance. We don't have to fearfully come to the God, to come to our God with works or with a speech or with anything else. We can joyfully come to our Lord because He desires us. Because He wants us. He wants our repentance. Ultimately, the repentance is turning from what hurts us to the one who loves us and helps us. And He gets excited about that. We can joyfully come to Him in repentance. Do not think for a second. Maybe you've been out of church for a while. Maybe you've been here for a while and you're still believing the same refrain. But you've got to figure this out. You've got to clean up your life. You've got to get it together. No. Just come to him. Come to him. I love what Dane Ortland, a pastor, says in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Man, he's talking about, he's fleshing out uh, Jesus' statement. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest like he's fleshing that throughout the whole book fleshing that out and he says you don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus hear this your very burden is what qualifies you to come your very sin is what qualifies you to come to Christ no payment is required he says I will give you rest his rest is a gift. It's a gift, not transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness, labor, or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside your control, heavy laden, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, that desire outstrips even your you need to believe that. The God of the universe has a desire for you. That you would come to him and you'd find rest. That you would repent of sin and you'd find joy. It is offered and he is waiting for. And finally, Christ alone is our only sufficiency. Meaning, he is enough. God is enough. Christ is enough. In Christ we get unbelievable, we get the depth of wisdom and knowledge that he offers. Colossians 2 teaches that. In Colossians 2 it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Hear this. Which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That in Christ there is an unbelievable depth of wisdom and knowledge that we have direct access to through faith in Christ. He is enough. What he supplies is enough. The Old Testament te teaches over and over again that God is our strength. Isaiah 12, 2 teaches, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is our strength. He gives us the power of faith. He gives us the power of sanctification, of growing to be more like Christ. He is enough over and over again. He is our power. He is our song, which means he's our joy. He is our salvation. Jesus is enough. 
We just sang about this, y'all. That beautiful hymn in Christ alone. That first, that first stanza, y'all, is just, I'm going to read it for us as we close out. He says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. He is the one who lights up my path. He is the one that supplies me the strength to make it to the end of the day and into the finish line. He is my song and my joy. He says, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. That maybe your life is tumultuous. Maybe it is all over the place right now. You need to hear this, that Christ is the rock and foundation. He says, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. When the strivings cease, when our fears are stilled because we see him as our comforter, my all and all here in the love of Christ, I stand. That is where we stand. When Luther said, here I stand, what we see is here I stand in Christ alone. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. But all of that is only made possible because Christ is enough and he is our sufficiency. We need this, y'all. I need this. Goodness gracious, I will hustle. I will caffeinate and activate, as the young guns say. Like, I will, I will grind it out. I will make it happen. I will work and I will strive. I will try to control all the things. I will try to please all of the people. I will go as hard as I can until my soul is run dry into the ground. And then Jesus looks at me and picks up my head and says, don't you see that I'm enough? I am enough. I am your sufficiency. I am your cornerstone. I am your comforter. See me alone as enough. We need to feel that. We need to hear that. We need to believe that as we come to the table. Matt's going to come up, and we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. He took the cup, which is the cup of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood that was shed for you, that as often as you eat and drink this, you proclaim my death until I return. What that means is when we come to the table, we are saying that Christ alone is our hope. When we eat the bread, we are reminded of his body that was broken. As we eat, as we drink of the juice, we're reminded of his, of his blood that was shed. We're declaring that Jesus alone is our hope. You may be wrestling with the darkest of sins and the darkest of seasons. And if you believe in Jesus, you can confidently come to the table because of what he has done, not what we have done. So Christian, when you are ready, as you've thought about this moment and what Jesus has done for us, come and take of the Lord's Supper. We have gluten-free in that back corner back there. We have tables in the back and the front run out. But come and take of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, please hear this very clearly. We don't want this for you. We don't want you to come and take part. We don't want you to take part in the Lord's Supper and miss the meaning of what's happening here. We want Christ for you alone. He is enough. He is worthy of your life. I want you to right now lay down your life and believe in him. I want you to call out to him in prayer. I want you to see that he can cover your sins, that he can give you a new life in Christ, but you've got to lay down your life. And my hope is that you do that right now. And if you do, come find me and come talk to me.
all of us in this moment as we worship. Remember, he is enough. It's he alone is our Savior. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you are good. You alone are our hope. Help us believe that. If there's anyone here that hasn't believed that, has not trusted in you alone, has not laid down their life to follow you, God, I pray that you would stir in their heart right now that they do it. They wouldn't hesitate. They'd pray and ask you to forgive them of their sins. They'd ask to become a follower of you. And they'd place faith in you right now. God, I pray for us as Christians who come to the table to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel. We come and take this meal and be reminded of how good you are. Yes, it's in Jesus' name.